I miss those questions that my kids, when they were little, would ask. Like questions like we were going for a walk once and one of my kids said, Dad, why in the world did God make flies? I would have asked mosquitoes personally, but I understand. That's a good question. Or how about this one? One of my kids at one point said, Dad, what are toes for? They're just kind of weird looking. I don't disagree. I'm not exactly sure. My favorite is when my my younger son met his sister for the first time. This was out in California, and I had gone to pick up the boys, and I bring them up to the room, and they see their little sister, Ruthie. And my younger son looks at her and goes, she's bald. Why is she bald? She's naked. Why did Ruthie come out bald and naked? He just pictured like somebody with overalls with pigtails and bows just coming out. Like he, he was so thankful. He's like, I wondered why we kept getting clothes from people at church. Why did God ever come out naked? Those questions are beautiful because they're learning about how the word works. And we laugh as parents or grandparents. We kind of love those questions. And it gets to a point where you don't ask necessarily ask those anymore because you've kind of learned those things. Or even if you don't necessarily know all the answers to those, because I guarantee as parents or grandparents, we get those questions and we're not even always exactly sure the technical reason for it. But that's the question of curiosity and purpose. What's the purpose of these things? Why is that happening? Those are good questions. Well, it's not just children that ask those. Every child of God has why questions. And certainly one why question would be about the church. Why does it exist? God, why did you make the church? Why does it matter to God? Why why should it matter to us? What's his purpose? That's a good question. And we're doing this series right now because we think actually that may be one of the most most important questions. We've talked about the importance of church three weeks ago. Then the last two weeks, as Vera just said, we wanted to clear away any rubble before we construct something of what Scripture says. We want to make sure that any, any, anything that's in the way that, that needs to be cleared, any, any false or bad or misguided understandings of the church, that can be thrown away. It's not a metaphor. It's not just, it's not just another way of talking about spiritually intentional activities or, or even... even even just some kind of community that we have, right? That's the word we like to use, good community. Got to have community. Got to have community. That's more than just that. It's more than just, well, because I need a place to gather for, with friends. It's different. It's not, it's not just a human project, even though God allows the church to be served by lots of men and women. It's not. It's not. It's not just a coffee with friends. It's, it's, not. it's not. It's not just something that we're putting on for some kind of self-benefit. And it's not even a voluntary society. It's not. Which is weird to think about because nobody brought you here. Well, you might be thinking, well, my parents brought me here. Well, maybe so. But you feel like you made the decision to come here in some way. You willingly came. But ultimately, as a believer in Christ, we're talking about it's not a voluntary thing. And then we talked about what it is. And I gave those, those, those seven kind of big categories. And everywhere, everywhere from it's the pleasure of God to the purpose of God to the 
provision of God, to the proclamation of God. It's all the things that God wants to do in the world for us and for the world. But you still might ask, like when you see toes, what are those for? Or you see flies, what in the world? For what purpose did God create that? Well, I want to tell you why the church exists. And honestly, to, to, be, to be real frank, it actually is quite simple. Because in the New Testament, Jesus Christ, the King, gave three specific commands. And each of those commands speak directly to the church. Love God, love neighbor, love one another. There it is. It's simple. I want, I want to flesh it out for you a little bit, but it really isn't rocket science. It's not like you're walking away like, I don't know if I get that. No, it is. It's a, a, an institution, a ministry designed with a threefold purpose, to help you love God more, to fulfill your mission to love neighbor, and to be the body of Christ as you love one another. And that is so beautiful that we need to spend time looking at how exactly Jesus says that this morning. Pray, pray with me, if you will. Father, thank you for your word, which ministers to us, that, that Mark just read for us from Matthew 22 and John 13. Help us to hear from King Jesus today, our Lord, to hear those commands. And Father, we pray that by your spirit that these commands would, would make a, a difference in our own lives. We would hear them and obey. So guide our time in your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, you, you might think that God gives a lot of what talk and not always a lot of why, but from the very beginning of the biblical story, God, when, when, when he spoke the world into existence, he didn't just explain what, light and dark, animals and plants, he also explained why. Even in Genesis 1 and 2, and I know we, we've talked about this before, a lot of times in light of the, the, the dominance of science over the last couple centuries, usually when we go to Genesis 1 through 2, we think of the how question, like how was it made? But if we're being honest and looking at how the church has read that text for the longest period of time, as much as the how is important and is significant, it's actually the why question that may be the most important thing God's trying to answer. God is trying to show why he made the world and how we're supposed to live in it, what its purpose is. So we should, be, we should not be surprised to find that God is given us both what and why instructions on many topics throughout Scripture, including the church. He didn't just define what it is. He taught us why it exists in three specific commands. Now, we often, we often will see in the New Testament the language of Lord Jesus Christ, and, and even the word Christ, but, but you need to understand what those terms mean because we can kind of kind of neutralize those because we just hear those words all the time. But the word Christ, that's not his last name. Like Tim Johnson, Jesus Christ. No, Christ is a title. That's why you often see Christ being on the front end of Jesus's name when Paul writes it. Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because it's a title. It means anointed one. It means Messiah. It's royal. And the word Lord literally is that kind of, it's another way of saying king. So when Paul says, Christ Jesus our Lord, he's literally trying to emphasize his kingship. 
So when we hear that Jesus Christ, our Lord, gave three specific commandments that explain the purpose of the church, we should probably be listening. Because as commandments, they're not just three suggestions. It's not just an informational session. It's saying this is not only what you're supposed to be doing it and why you're supposed to be doing it, but also you must be obeying this. Everything the church does, every aspect of its life in ministry is to be driven by and directed at these three commands. And we see them in Matthew 22 and John 13. If you're familiar with those texts, Matthew 22 is the text where the two greatest commandments are mentioned by Jesus. We'll look at that in a minute. And then John 13 is where Jesus gives them a new, i.e. a third commandment. Let's look at the first command of King Jesus that explains the purpose of the church. First, the church exists to love God. I summarize that by saying this is an upward ministry of worship. Look at Matthew 22 in your Bible or just in your notes. But when the Pharisees heard that he, Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, and I love that statement, like the entire time Jesus is being attacked by the left and the right. In fact, if I were to kind of give some kind of analogy to fit our own day, the Pharisees would be the right conservatives, the Sadducees would be the left liberals. He just took out the liberals, he's about to take out the conservatives now. Like both sides are attacking him. It's not like he aligned perfectly with one group. And notice how they gathered together. Look at the, They're joining forces to stop him. In our day, it would be Pelosi and Trump are having several lunches to try to figure out how to get Jesus. Imagine that happening. That's what you just saw in verse 34 when Jesus was there. And one of them, a lawyer, and when you hear lawyer, think, yeah, a guy that does wills and stuff. No, probably a better translation would be scholar. So they got somebody from Princeton, University of Jerusalem, right, to, to come on down and say, we, we need some brain power, so bring it. So some guy comes in his academic garb with diplomas hanging from his arm, and he is going to get Jesus. In fact, the, the narrator tells you as much when it says, and one of them, a scholar, asked him a question to test him. And you can imagine that the tone of verse 36 is not like kind of like an innocent, neutral teacher, well, which is the greatest? In fact, even the word teacher is probably a joke because he doesn't think this guy's credentialed at all. Teacher, you who think you are one, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Well, what does he say? There's hundreds of commandments in the law. If you pick one, what do you do to the others? Do you nullify God's word? Is it insignificant? I wonder how long it took Jesus to respond. I can imagine that the moment the scholar began to speak in verse 36, that clearly crowds around all got silenced to look. And here's the king. I mean, just imagine the moment. Here's the king of the universe being challenged by somebody he made. Just the affront should just come to us. It's like, can you believe you'd even speak that way? You ever had to say that to a kid? Hey, don't talk to your father like that. Imagine having to say that, hey, don't talk to your creator like that. Watch your tone. But nobody says that. And Jesus takes that question. 
And what, as we see in Scripture, what they intended for evil, God used for good. In this beautiful moment when Jesus is literally being by tone and by, 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 by planning together and by a, kind of a trying to trick question, God uses that mercifully to actually reveal love. Like what they intended because of hate, God displays love and calls us to act likewise. Jesus says this, and he said to him, verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And he, and he qualifies, this is the great and first commandment. Well, that implies a second. But let's just sit on this first one. Just as the Ten Commandments, and, and we're actually going to do a series on the Ten Commandments after the new year. I'm going to take you through the Ten Commandments. And if you, if you look at the Ten Commandments, they're kind of broken down into two parts. The first part is vertical commands, you in relationship to God. The second part of the Ten Commandments are horizontal commands, you in relationship to others. So it actually makes sense. If the Ten Commandments would summarize the rest of God's laws are broken vertically and horizontally, that God divides them up just like that way too. The first great commandment, love God, directs the primary focus of a person's life on God. This is your primary focus. Jesus is literally quoting Deuteronomy 6.5, which is a confessional statement that summarizes the thrust of God's laws. Everything God does is ultimately for his glory. And that can be hard to understand. You're like, man, is God kind of into himself a little bit? Absolutely he is. And is that strange or awkward in any way? Absolutely it is not. He is worthy of all praise and all glory. And the best thing for us, the best thing for us, is that we see him for who he is. And it's only because of sin, it's only because of sin that there's this kind of, whether it's a total block or, or just like a vague kind of blinding that we think we have any importance in distinction from God. Because that's, that's how you're kind of thinking, even as Greg mentioned, are, are you joking me that like we're gonna be doing worship service in heaven for like a million years? And every time you hear that, you're thinking, yeah, yeah. And inside you're like, that sounds boring. And if you're be honest, like, that's going to be great. Not really. Like for a million years, I'm going to be singing him praises? Like that just sounds so boring until you realize you're only saying that because right now you love yourself the most. Sin has literally sickened you in such a way that we love ourselves. We love unworthy things. Because I'll tell you what, something you love, you never like, I really don't want to do this anymore. You're at a party with friends, you're like, ah, I really didn't want to go. You're, you're, you're at that cuddle time with your grandchild, you're not, ah, I, I, I'm only doing this out of duty. The day of your wedding, when you're looking at that spa, you're like, I really just wish I were golfing. The first birth of your child, you're like, honestly, the waiting room had nice chairs. Like nobody says that, nobody's like, uh, nobody goes to these, you talk about what you love all the time. And honestly, when it ends, man, I miss that. You miss that. Why? Because you have an unmuted love for that thing. And you'd rather be doing that only. 
when you actually, it's to imagine this, when your eyes are fully opened, like Paul's language, you see him face to face, meaning person to person, unadulterated, unmuted, unblocked, absolute access to God, there is nothing you're going to want to do more. It will be the most beautiful thing, and, you, and, and a thousand years will go by, and it will felt like a day. But the problem is that's not right now what our hearts desire. Our loves are totally misdirected. They're just misdirected. And so God establishes his church for you to gather and to redirect every week your first love, to be reminded of God's love for you, that he is the greatest thing. This is the first reason why the church exists. The first reason the church exists is to shepherd the Christian to see God as the most important thing, that you would see and, and live and act as if it were so. Your full trust would go into God, your deepest allegiance, your primary lens for seeing the world, and your ultimate obedience. We just sang that, blessed be the, yeah, that's a, that's a great song to sing, and you came in, and the coffee hasn't even hit you yet, so you're still not awake. You don't even know what you're singing, really. But if you were to kind of stop and look at those words for a second, did you just hear what you sang? Blessed be the name of the Lord when the sun's shining down on me. I'll picture that, right? Isn't that beautiful? You're, you got that convertible and you're driving, the sun's down. You're having a great day the afternoon and it's beautiful and you're going to have a great meal and it just feels so good. Blessed be the name of the Lord on the road marked with suffering. Did, did, did you stop singing that line? Because that's what we just all sang. I mean, I, I stopped to listen because knowing I was going to ask you this question, and it sounded like it was the same volume for the first stanza as it was the second. You sang those words. Blessed be the name of the Lord on the road marked with suffering. You sang those words. And the only way that can be is that your circumstances dim in the light of his glory and his grace. And you need to be reminded that no matter what is happening, God is God. And you will commit to him and make him your first love that no, no matter what happens, that you will trust in him, you will serve him, you will commit to him in all things. And that's why you gathered. We're trying to obey this first command where I'm even telling you this morning, God has to be your first love. Everything else is a deep second place. Augustine says that almost shockingly in his on Christian teaching, he says, only God is to be loved, everything else is to be used. Meaning, everything is a means to see ultimately that God is the God of all things. For from him and through him and to him are all things. That's what Augustine's saying. Even those, those little babies that are, you, that are yours, that are so hard not to give all your devotion, are actually meant to direct you to see the beauty and the glory of God, your creator. So how do you do that? I, what's that look like? Well, if we're obeying this command, I think one would be the gathering of corporate worship. One of the most important things you can do is gather as God's people to make sure that week after week after week, your allegiance and your focus is on Jesus Christ. But it also just looks like a life of discipleship. That you are, a, you are growing in your committed devotion to Christ. That's why we've said before, and, and, and I, I'm borrowing this from others, a, a very healthy approach to growing in your love of God and being 
part of the Christian life and being a disciple is a church plus one approach, right? Like you gather for Sunday morning on corporate worship and then you find one other way to deepen and enrich your life of discipleship, whether that is being involved in your small group, whether that is coming on Wednesday nights, whether that is a kid, it's going to your growth hour or coming to youth group on Sunday night. Like you're finding one thing outside of corporate worship. And that's why even in philosophy of our church, we actually think that corporate worship is so important that we want your little seven-year-old sitting right here. And we get they're gonna wiggle and kick, right? Or they're gonna get bored at certain times, get it. But the liturgy of regularly gathering is is tacitly forming them. It's not just knowledge, oh, they don't understand the sermon. No, but you know what they understand? They're sitting there with a couple hundred people praising Jesus Christ. You do that for 18 years, you're formed. You are totally formed. In the same way, if they watch mom and dad, watch cable news one hour every single night, their politics will be formed, the issues of the day will be totally formed. They might not even understand everything so-and-so is saying, but they have been formed. If they watch their parents totally, totally skip on the things of the Lord because golf is more important or their soccer is more important, they are being discipled. And you never said anything negative about God or the church. You didn't have to. All they saw is what your true love was. The second command of King Jesus is in the second half of Matthew, that text in Matthew 22, and I summarize it this way. The church exists to love neighbor. And if the love of God is an upward ministry of worship, we could call this one an outward ministry of witness. Listen to Jesus. Verse 39 in Matthew 22, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And there, that verse 40 is what I was saying to you earlier, that when you look at the Ten Commandments, it's vertical and horizontal. And Jesus is just saying those exact things. That's what he's teaching us. I didn't come up with that. I just read verse 40 before we started the service today. The second commandment directs the Christian's love of God outward to their neighbor. Like if you love God, you will love the things God loves. We do this, we do this with our own families, our kids. We begin to be in tune with and attentive to the things that they love because we love them. Notice how Jesus commands, love your neighbor as yourself. That's an interesting qualification. You actually don't love God as yourself, do you? Like he's, he, he's not the, you're not the model for what upward love looks like. But when it comes to those like you, also made in your image, there you can become a bit of a litmus test. But, but I think it might be more than that. Verse 39 is suggesting that there is this instinctive love of self that Jesus is saying, use that. Use that as the ruler. How you instinctively love yourself is how I want you to love others. And that ultimately will be the transforming work of the Spirit in our lives that helps us love others as we love ourselves. 
Just as we think of ourselves nearly every minute, uh, I heard a sociologist say, this is pretty shocking, statistically there's only about five to seven percent of waking hours that you are not thinking of something related to you. Five to seven percent of your day. And it might even just be simple, hungry, cold. Oh, I got this, oh, I'm glad that, you know what I'm saying? Like you're constantly thinking through something that has direct impact and usually benefit for you. So that if there's only five to 7% of your day, you can imagine how radical this command might seem. You gotta split that a bit more. How much does God think of us? How much does he accommodate for us? And he's not a peer or an equal, an equal image bearer. He, he, he's God, yet he thinks of us. So who is your neighbor? Well, it's not just the people you already like. In fact, Jesus is pretty clear on that. Like He throws enemies and stuff in there as those who qualify. I maybe think the best way to think of it is what the word suggests. Your neighbor are, are, is or are the people in your physical and geographic proximity. When you go to school at Rock Valley College, your neighbors are right there. When you drive home after work on a Thursday night, now you know who your neighbors are. When you're at work in your office, your neighbor are those that you connect with. When you're about your business at Walgreens or Walmart or Schnucks or at a restaurant down in Rockford, your neighbor includes those around you. This means that as Christians, we are to live sent. A friend of mine who's a missionary in Germany used that language all the time a few years ago, and as I would read his letters as he was ministering in Berlin, it, I, it, it made a lot of helpful sense to me. You live sent. Everywhere you go, you are sent to display God's love. And that you, as a bearer of the love of God and a minister of the gospel, are to permeate the people and the places where you live and work. And think about this way. God in his beautiful providence has literally peppered creation with these lovers of others. And it is beautiful. That's why what's beautiful about blessed be the Lord is it's not just it's only the, 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 the sunny sun shining on me moments that God wants you to be bearer of his love. It's also on the road marked with suffering. So that you go into that doctor's appointment and you're talking to nurses and you're, you're sitting there for your chemo treatments or you're going to this and that place and even in the midst of suffering, you are to be loving. And only God can do that. But what a high calling for God's people, the church. So the second reason the church exists is to make God known to every person in every part of the world, whether it's in the state line area or Mexico. People need God, they were made for him, their lives are broken without his grace and his redeeming love. How does that happen? Through corporate mission, what we do, even supporting the eagers as part of that, we are participating in a love of neighbor, even by having the eagers here, not only declaring what they're doing, but by tangibly supporting them and praying for them and what they do. That's part of our church participates in that. It could be individual mission as you go to work tomorrow. And in the lunchroom, you get a conversation with somebody who's struggling, and you are literally sent there in the perfect providence of God 
to display the love that Jesus would have had for them had he still been incarnate in, on the earth sitting in that coffee room. You are the body of Christ. And it happens through special grace conversations about Jesus and common grace activities. You love your neighbor not just in word, but in deed. Last command, the church exists to love one another. John 13 is pretty potent, and we'd be mistaken if we missed what Jesus says. Notice he calls on the new commandments. It's almost like if he's recalling what he said in Matthew 22. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And here's the qualification. Get ready for this one, right? If there's a seatbelt in your chair, put it on. I don't think there is, kids. Just said that. Here it is. Just as I have loved you, you all sort of love one another. That is loaded. You know how Jesus loved you, he died for you. So if you were just to glance around the room here and look at the people in this room, just do it. Just look, look to your left and right real quick. Just look around this room. John 13, 34 and 35 is talking about the people you just put your eyes on. This is not talking about the people at work that you cannot stand because they never do what they're supposed to do and you're always making up for it. Get it. Hard to love them. They qualify under the neighbor part. But your brothers and sisters in Christ, the rest of your church, that's this commandment. And Jesus says, here's how I want you to love them, right? Here's how I want you to love them. I want you to love them exactly as I loved you. In fact, it's going to be so potent, it should be, right? That he ends in verse 35 in John 13 by saying this, by this, like when, when this is happening, All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Like, it will be so strange that Republicans and Democrats, that people who have signs Black Lives Matter and people who have signs Back the Badge, that people who are super wealthy and just got back from Paris for a week from a weekend, and others who literally work seven days a week, that people with the whitest of skin and the blackest of skin, the oldest and the generation, the greatest generation, and the most crazy millennial, the people with the greatest education, and those who are just actually learning how to read, will have a love for one another that literally tastes like the love that Jesus gave to his people. And if anything, to be honest with you, brothers and sisters, you go through 2020 with a racial tension, political chaos, and health pandemic, and you find out the church decided not to do that. The third reason the church exists is to express the love and care of the Father for every child of God. You are the body of Christ. As Jesus said, the love of the church is to reflect the very love of God. We are God's assigned hands. We are his resources. We are God's time. We are his hugs. We are his skills and his fellowship for the Christians in our local church. By the way, how do you do that if you're not present? Like, how, how do you do that via Zoom? How can you have an iCampus as a church and in any way do this? 
memo box, good to see you, greeting you with a holy kiss, like not going to work well. And here's how it looks like, brothers and sisters. Loving one another happens in Scripture when the church forgives, when it prays for one another, when it edifies one another, when it reconciles with one another, when it serves one another, when it teaches one another, when it submits to one another, when it offers generosity and hospitality to one another. In short, read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, see what Jesus did, repeat in your local church. So in one sense, you could say, well, yeah, hey, that was pretty easy. You said at the start of the sermon today, you said, here's what you said, pretty simple, three loves. Love God, that's upward, an upward ministry of worship. Second, King Jesus' command is to love neighbor. Got it, got it. An outward ministry of witness. Third, love one another. That's in the body of Christ. That's an inward ministry of nurture. In one sense, that's pretty straightforward. It's three loves. Pretty clear commands of Jesus. I got that intellectually. In another step, to actually live that out is going to be the rest of your Christian life. And the health and the maturity of our church will be how we do these three things. So why did God make toes? I've nothing to add to that today. Why mosquitoes and flies? I'm sure there's some science major out here that's got an idea for that. Why did Ruthie come out bald? I don't know. Why is her dad going bald? I don't know that either. But why does the church exist? Sit on that for a second. Because it's how God administers our alignment to him. It's how God administers our assignment from him. And it's how he directs our affection for one another. Is that not beautiful? Remember the summary? Maybe kids especially, Vera said it too. The church is how God ministers to his people and the world. And by obeying those three commands of King Jesus, love God, love neighbor, and love one another, literally the world will look at us and say, what is happening there? And as I regularly like to to say, it's not a what. It's a who. It's the work of Jesus in our midst. And I pray that that be our church. We're going to sing the doxology in a minute, but let me just pray for us as our church that we would exist in that way as we close. Father, you are so good to us. It's just remarkable that of the three commands that you gave us, they are literally being displayed by you toward us. We love because you first loved us. You you, you drew us to the best thing. It was you. You told us what was the best. You wanted everything else to be secondary, even though we couldn't see or feel it. You loved us when we were alien and strangers. You became, you moved in next door in your incarnation. You became our neighbor. And you loved us in such a way that you showed us exactly how we're supposed to care for our own family because when you adopted us, you loved us that way. Lord, how can that not form us? So we thank you for your word that guides us. But more more than that, Father, we pray that this word would form us in a way that we could live that out. 
Father, may Hope Evangelical Free Church be a church that loves God, loves neighbor, and loves one another. And I pray that, Father, do a revival of work in this body. And Father, I pray that not only for our church, but all the kingdom embassies around the world and in our local area, that they would love God and neighbor and one another as well. So Father, as we close, sing the doxology, which is perfect practice and rehearsal of the first command of King Jesus. May we sing with our souls and not just with our lips. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.